Over the last couple of weeks, uh, we've been in the Easter story, kind of stopping in some of the major points along the way. Palm Sunday, the triumphant arrival of Jesus into Jerusalem. And then as we moved into the Easter story last weekend, those readings all week from both the Old Testament prophecy as they foretold and they spoke into what was to come and the New Testament accounts for us from John's gospel that give uh, an idea of just what it was like to be in those days. And then we got to Good Friday and Jesus is crucified. It is finished. And the Holy Saturday, the silence as the body is buried in the grave and for all of the world, it looked like death had won. And then we jump to Easter Sunday and now we're at the resurrection, the incredible hope of the risen Jesus. And the Easter narratives go on for a couple of weeks. It's not just a one-time thing. They go on for a number of weeks. And so this week, we're reading from John chapter 20, verses 19 to 31. If you have a Bible on you there, why don't you grab it now? If not, I'm just going to read it to you uh, from the NIV. This is John 20, verses 19 to 31. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them, And said, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed him his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the 12, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord, but he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. And we thank God for his word as it still speaks to us today. It's so good to be with you today, not just with our central family, but with our wider Carmoney family. You join us here uh, in our home in May Street, just as last week we joined uh, with my dad as he spoke from the Carmoney venue. It's really good uh, to have you tuning in with us. It's my great privilege, my great pleasure to be able uh, to preach and to speak to you today, wherever you are. Given how the coronavirus has affected all of our lives in this season of life, We're all lamenting some of the great losses that are just part and parcel of what it means to live right now. So people are lamenting the fact that they can't get their hair cut. They're either embracing on one side, either a tremendous mop, or else they've gone the other way and let some family member shave their head. Good luck with that. The other thing that people seem to be lamenting loads on my social media channels is McDonald's, right? People are like, I would kill for a Big Mac 
Uh, and for me, one of the big things that I miss right now is Saturday night watching match of the day. It's been an institution in my life uh, for as long as I can remember as a young child, just begging, asking my parents to tune in to watch match of the day on a Saturday night. And I still have done that as the years have gone on. And over the last while, because it's, there's no football, they've changed up some of their programming. Maybe you've tuned in to see some of what they've been doing, but they've been running Premier League top tens. I managed to catch the top 10 captains episode that, that aired just a couple of weeks ago. And there was just this recurring theme running through that episode as they spoke about top player after top player. And it was this, that when they were on the pitch, it made all the difference in the world. People who could galvanize a temperamental team, teams who were down and out, moments away from losing. They were 3-0 down. They were the people that lifted them out of the hole that they were in, off and on the pitch they led. When they were there, it changed everything. And I don't know about whether you've experienced somebody like that for you in your life, in your lifetime. For me, growing up, it was my mom. And this was kind of countercultural, right? I mean, because when you're growing up as a kid and into your teenage years, it's so much marked throughout that time by your pushback at, the, at your parents and what they think and what they believe as you develop your own ideas about the person you are and the person you want to be. So mine as a child growing up, mostly in the 90s, was all about brand names, right? 90s fashion was all about huge logos emblazoned across everything that you owned. I mean, if you didn't have the right brand, if you didn't have the right ones on at any one time, you weren't cool. So much of your time as a teenager uh, was spent trying to be cool, trying to be in, trying to be approved of. And yet, I can honestly say that even in the middle of that time of my life of trying to be in, trying to be cool, trying to be approved of, that any time I had a sporting event or some sort of prize giving or a performance or even things like BB displays, when I looked out at the faces who were there, there was only one face that I was looking for. And it was my mom's. And it was the only one that mattered. Because when she was there, it meant the world to me. It changed everything. And the passage that we've just read today, it's one of those moments. Right now, we're still in the events of that Easter Sunday. We're likely still in Jerusalem from John's point of view of these events. And it's the evening now, and the disciples are together. In lots of ways, the whole of John chapter 20 is all about relationships that have been and are being restored. From Mary Magdalene in the early part, then through to the, to the whole of the disciples, and finally with Thomas as the passage ends. It had been a harrowing couple of days. Fresh in their minds would be the events of that Good Friday. Jesus crucified, dead, buried. They would have been shattered by all they had seen and experienced. But not only that, they would have known that they had played their part themselves. In his hour of need, Jesus was alone. He said that he would be. He told them that it would happen. And then he was. And even more than that, Peter would have himself been thinking about the three times that he denied he even knew Jesus. They were scattered and they were shattered. And I'm so struck when I read this passage that we've read today at how even though they had so let Jesus down, when you read the passage, that's not the impression that you get. Jesus should have condemned them for their failure. Instead, he commissions them to go in faith. It's an incredible act. It's an incredible thing for Jesus 
to do, and it changes everything. This is the aftermath of those Easter events. And right here, still on that Sunday, all of those years ago, Jesus is speaking into our Sunday now, into the truth and the reality that we live in of the risen Jesus, of death defeated, of the promise of new life in him and the hope of the heaven which is breaking in and will one day come. And he says that in the reality of that life, the resurrection life, life until he comes, is to be marked by two things today. And they are peace and sight. The first thing he says is that life is to be marked by peace. This is what we read in those first verses. On the evening of that first day of the week when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. As many of you will know, I'm a dad. I'm a dad to a little girl called Elle. And one of the great privileges of my life over the last number of years has been that because my work is a little bit more flexible than a lot of people's work allows them to be, I've been able to take my day off on a Thursday and spend it with Elle. And so every Thursday we would try to get out and about and do things that I knew she enjoyed. So I would every week take her to Established for Coffee, right? Hashtag number one dad, right? Really, it's not about the coffee, okay? I know you're sat there thinking, now what? All these other dads are taking their kids to parks and to fun things and Dave's taking their to establish, right? But really it wasn't about the coffee shop. It was about the bus journey in. Elle loves to ride the bus. And there was this moment one day when Elle was really very small. I couldn't tell you how old she was, but she was still in the pram. And Elle has always been really good with language, okay? If you've ever met our daughter, you'll know that she's a little bit like motor mouth right now. But back then, her language wasn't as good as it is now. And so we're on the bus one day, and we're coming down into Belfast. The bus is turning on the Royal Avenue. It drives up, and eventually it begins to slow down as it's going to pull in at the bus stop. So I take the brake off the pram. I wheel the pram to the front, to the line where the bus driver is and just as the doors open I hear this tiny little person's voice squeak out of the pram saying thanks mate and I wheel the pram off the bus absolutely mortified but both finding it absolutely hilarious at the same time thanks mate and the thing is that she'd picked up common language We'd ridden that same bus journey so many times. I'd obviously said that so many times and just never realized that that was how I got off the bus every time I got off the bus, but Elle had. And she was just speaking out common language. And these, and these short verses that we've just read, they're marked by common language, a bit of common language, a common greeting, peace be with you. And this phrase, shalom alakim, okay, it would have been along the lines of bless you, or as one commentator puts it, may God give you every good thing. It was common language. It was something that was in everyday vocabulary. And particularly for the disciples, it would have taken them back to another time, probably a happier time, almost certainly a better time, when they were with Jesus and he was teaching them. He had said to them in John 14, 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not, do not be afraid. 
would have taken them back there. That experience in their minds, that's where they would have went. Jesus is talking about peace and yet what a time to speak it over their lives. You see, this is the Sunday evening. We know that Jesus first appeared that Sunday morning. We assume that the disciples would have heard about it from Mary Magdalene's encounter earlier that day and yet here they are together, locked away in a room for fear of the Jewish leaders. They were afraid. Even though they'd heard the news, they were still afraid. Afraid that once the Jewish leaders had got done with crucifying Jesus, that they would turn their attention to them next. Perhaps maybe afraid that as the news spread, that the grave was empty, that the accusations would come to them, that they stole the body. Either way, one way or another, they're together. They're locked away in a room and fear is at the wheel. And then Jesus appears. We don't know how he appears. Does he come through the wall? Does he just appear out of thin air? We don't know how he's there. John doesn't tell us either. And in lots of ways, it doesn't matter. Because one way or another, they were afraid, locked away in a room full of fear. And Jesus is now standing among them. And he wants them to know that it's really him, okay? That's the first thing we've got to see in this part of the passage. He shows them his hands and his side. The whole point is that the same Jesus that hung on the cross and died with the wounds to prove it is the one that's standing before them. In other words, this isn't some sort of spirit or ghost. This is really him. And then he goes on. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. You know, I wonder how we, Central and Carmoni, I wonder how we will be when this is all over. Listening to people chat about this moment that they're in, the common response is, when this is all over, I just can't wait to see my family. I just can't wait to hang out with my friends. I just can't wait to hug people again and be together with people that I know. And I agree, right? Totally. I agree. I long for that. I miss so much the fellowship of the church, the fellowship of my friends, the closeness of my family. But yet we will not all be the same, will we? Like, I wonder, how will we have changed? Will we be taking more care of hygiene? Will we all be wearing masks? Will we hug less? Those of you that aren't huggers right now are like, amen to that. Who won't be with us anymore? Who will be with us at the end of all this? And how will all of this isolation have shaped us for better and for worse? We will be us, but we'll be changed, won't we? And right now for the disciples, all of the fellowship of old is restored. It's like old times all over again. If the disciples are anything like us, they'll want to stay like this, right? They'll want to try and bottle the moment that they're in. Just stay here. You're back, Jesus, and we're together. And all of the pain that we've known over this weekend, all of the terror that we felt, all of the pain that was in our hearts watching you die on the cross, right? You're back and it's okay. We're here. Can we just stay here together? And yet Jesus changes everything. And he does it with breath. And this word breath that we hear in John's account, right, it's reminiscent of those words right at the start of Genesis in chapter 2, verse 7, whenever it said this, then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. 
God's breath equals animation. God's breath means life. When God breathes, dead things come to life. And this breathing on the disciples is all about recreation. It's about breathing in the life of God for the new purposes of his mission in the world. You see, they were the same, but they were different. They're being sent as we are sent. Most missiologists, that's people who study and work in the area of mission, they agree that John's form of the Great Commission, the one that we've read today, is the primary one, right? As I am sent, as I am sent, so I send you. Not only to proclaim, right? This is not just about words, but to heal and restore, to be people who tell of forgiveness, to tell of what Jesus has done, to be to the world what Jesus was to the world. Donald Carson wrote, Jesus deliberately makes his mission the model of ours. In other words, what Jesus was, what Jesus did, is to become the way that we live. The thing is, this being sent, this Jesus sent, right? It sounds good. But if you're the disciples right then, it probably would have filled them with anything but peace. Why? Because they had seen where he had been sent. They'd seen that the cross was the destination. At this point, they had watched, wept, feared, doubted, failed. Jesus is not offering them the good life or the easy life. He had called them to follow him. And now he is sending them the way he went. And yet he offers them peace. This phrase happens three times in this short passage. When something crops up in a passage once, it may be something that needs your attention. When it crops up three times in a short passage, normally it's because the gospel writer wants you to know something about it. And it happens three times in this passage, and it's his presence that makes all of the difference. You see, he does something in this part. He doesn't make his peace the result of their sending, right? It's not like he's saying, go and do the stuff and then I'll give you my peace, right? And the thing is that that's so often how we think about peace whenever it comes to our mind, right? That if I could only do this, if I could only be this, if this would only change, if I could only be better, if you would only be better, if something would only happen in my life, then I could have peace. That's not what Jesus says. Peace is in the preparation not the result of participation. See, this is that word shalom again, that Jesus speaks of again and again. And yet never had it been so full of meaning as it was for the disciples right then. This is shalom, okay? The people of that time thought of peace much differently than what we do now. You see, we just think of it as an end to agitation or some form of conflict or something that's wrong in the world, don't we? but they didn't think of it that way. Shalom was everything in its right place. It was everything as God intended it to be. It was fullness of life. He's recreating the disciples with his breath and he's renewing the shalom, the fullness of their lives. This peace, the peace of the kingdom is the in-breaking life of another world. And here's the thing. Jesus says it's not just given to them for them to keep and hoard and feel better about themselves and the world. It's given so we can bear it to the world. The disciples were called, as we are called, to bear the life of God in our lives. As Jesus bore the marks of the cross, so we are to bear the marks of the resurrection. Let that sink in for a moment. 
as Jesus on that day, his hands, his side, bore the marks of the cross. He's telling the disciples then, as he tells us now, that our lives, because he bore the marks of the cross, our lives bear the marks, the new life of the resurrection. This is not the sort of commission that just sends us to say nice things about Jesus, nice things about God and be good living. It's the sort of commission that sends us to show him, all of him, the fullness of who he was, the fullness of what he came to do in the world, to the world. Peace, the greatest peace, is not found when all this is over. Peace is not job security or the promise of good health. Peace is not found in seeing all of your plans or your dreams come true. And it's not lost when they don't either. Peace, shalom, is not everything is going great for me. Peace is everything as God intended. And we only get that through the presence of Jesus. Peace is breathed into us and lived out. As Jesus displays all the marks of the death he died, we live with all the demonstration of a life that's come to live in us. John is saying that life until he comes, life post-Easter is marked by peace. But secondly, he's saying it's marked by sight. These are the verses uh, 24 to 31. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, which means twin, okay? He was a twin. One of the 12 was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, the doors, a week later his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. I don't know about you, but there are times in life when you just can't believe even your best friends. For example, uh, when your best friends tell you about the best takeaway in an area, right? You go on holiday somewhere or you move into a new house and you, you know, you want to get a takeaway on a Friday night and you ask one of them, you know, where's good? And they tell you, oh yeah, you, you go to this one, okay? And you think, oh, amazing. My best friend's giving me the recommendation. And then you drive past and you think, oh my goodness, what a dump. Like you're almost beginning to taste the food poisoning and you're like, nah, I don't get it. I'm walking away, right? Even though your best friends have told you, you don't believe them. And as we read this position, this portion of the passage that we're in today, we are now zoomed in on Thomas, right? A week has passed since the disciples saw Jesus and Thomas has been in that worst position that it's possible to be in, right? Listening to all of your friends go on and on about some experience that they've just had. They had seen the risen Jesus. He hadn't. And he just can't believe him. Two things strike me about this part of the passage. One, that the resurrection is that unbelievable, is that scandalous. Think about it for a second. Think about all Thomas had known and seen along with his brothers of what Jesus had done in his life. He had seen Lazarus raised from the dead, right? Yet the resurrection of someone crucified, Jesus, the resurrection that they had seen was that unbelievable that he couldn't believe it. 
And secondly, look at what you miss when you're not together with the people of God. Thomas wasn't there with the others that evening. And look at what he missed. Here's the thing, where you sit right now, it's probably been easier than ever to opt out of the community of the church, right? I mean, no one's going to notice. We're not all together on a Sunday. No one's going to know if you tune in or if you don't. No one's going to know if anyone is connecting with you. No one's going to know if people are around you continuing to speak uh, the way of Jesus into your life. No one's going to know, right? It's never been easier to opt out. It's perfectly understandable, right? But then it would have been for Thomas then too. And look at what he missed. He withdrew. He chose loneliness over togetherness. And look at what he missed. So Thomas isn't there. And the interaction that we are reading today means that Thomas forever becomes known as Doubting Thomas, right? It's the thing that's in our vocabulary. And in lots of ways, it's pretty unfair, okay? Thomas was definitely loyal. He was definitely stubborn. He was almost certainly a pessimistic person, right? But then he sets his stall out like this. Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails are and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. He's setting out his criteria for belief. And all of us know that that nearly always doesn't end well. But at least there's one thing to admire of Thomas in this moment. And it is that he is unswervingly honest, isn't he? No matter how much pressure, no matter how much they talk about it, no matter how, what his friends have seen, he refuses to believe unless he sees it for himself. He is brutally honest, even about his doubt. In truth, I think... When I read this part of the passage, I think what he really wants is to believe. Why do I think that? Because he protests too much, right? I mean, just look at how strongly he pushes back at the other disciples. When Joy and I uh, started chatting online, okay, on Facebook, yes, we were one of those couples that met online, okay? I was up front with my friends around that time. I would tell them, you know, yeah, yeah, I I think I like this girl. I think she's cool. I think she's great. I mean, I've looked at all her profile pictures, pretty sure I fancy her. I think she's great, right? I would tell people that I was into her. But Joy, on the other hand, she spent all of her time walking and talking with her friends. And when they would ask about this boy that she was spending all of these hours talking online with, right? When they asked about it, she would tell them that she wanted absolutely nothing to do with me romantically. No, 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 no. I do not see him that way. And the thing is, all of them saw straight through it. I've got her, right? And the thing is that Thomas pushes back so strongly and so honestly that we know he wants to believe. The thing is that faith and doubt so often belong together, don't they? So often faith is the other side of doubt, the twin of doubt, if you will. Where there is doubt, there can be faith. Where there is faith, there is almost certainly also doubt. Tennyson, the British poet from the 19th century, he said this, There lives more faith in honest doubt, believe me, than in half the creeds. Just because somebody doubts, even just because they're very honest and open about those doubts, outspoken almost, does not mean that there is not faith rising up underneath the surface. And then Jesus appears again. And it's the same greeting of peace as it was before, the same miraculous way that he comes to be in the room. But this time he's in the room and he's speaking directly to Thomas. 
Thomas probably felt anything but peaceful. He's been speaking strongly, right? And you know that thing when you've been talking about someone or something and then all of a sudden they're in the room in front of you, right? It's cringy. He probably feels that way. And Jesus is here. And now he shows him everything he asked for. And even though Thomas said he would need to see and put his fingers in the holes in his hands and touch his side, seeing was enough for Thomas. We'll never know if he reached his hand out to touch. We just know that seeing was enough. And this is what he says. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Here's the thing. This is a big deal. Right in this moment, Thomas is seeing, right? And as he sees, he addresses Jesus as God. And this was not the done thing, okay? And that time to address any other human being as a God was to blaspheme, okay? And not only that, it's not just you are a Lord and God, it's you're my Lord and my God. The personal doubts have turned to personal faith. And Thomas, the one that generally we only talk about as doubting Thomas, becomes the first person in the book of John to call Jesus God. No one else addresses Jesus like this until now. The doubter becomes the faithful. This was a leap of faith, and it was an act of adoring worship. This is the last eyewitness faith statement in the Gospels, and it belongs to Thomas. We got it all wrong. The whole book of John, in lots of ways, comes full circle with what Thomas has to say. You'll remember that right at the start of John, in that reading that we read every year, the last reading in Lessons and Carols that says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And now, as the book closes, Thomas tells us it's true. Jesus is God. He's everything he said he was. He's everything he claims to be. He's God. And how did he do it? Well, for Thomas, it was an act of sight. Because now he's not just seeing Jesus. He's not just seeing the wounds, the holes in the hands and in his side, right? He's seeing beyond the wounds. He's seeing the reality of who Jesus really is. Verse 29 tells us this. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Here's the thing Jesus is thinking of us. Jesus is speaking to every believer down through the years of church history who has not seen. For us in our fears and in our doubts, some of which you may be sitting in today, we can't see him the way Thomas did. We can't reach out a hand to the holes in his hands and the piercing in his side. And even if we did, would it change anything? Think about it. I mean, look at Judas Iscariot. He saw plenty of Jesus. He was with him lots and still he lost his way. Resurrection life until he comes means seeing with true sight. If peace calls out a life, a life lived pursuing our lives in this world as God intended it, then we'll need to see our lives and this world as God sees it because that is what faith is. Peter, who was another eyewitness on that day with Thomas, writes in the same vein in 1 Peter 1. And this is what he writes. Praise be to God the Father, to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. That's the Easter message, right? 
That part of the passage is the Easter message. This is where we are right now with everything to live for. Hope and new life have taken hold of us. See, here's the thing. The Easter's message of resurrection is not something that we just celebrate once a year. It's a reality that we live in. We have everything to live for. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. You see, this is the shalom of the kingdom, the peace that we've been talking about, a future which starts now. Everything is God intended and one day we'll be made whole as the world is made new. Peter goes on, in all of this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So now we are weathered. Faith with the corners knocked off, doubts, disappointments, Fears, faith tested is refined when all that's left is gold. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and a glorious joy for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You see, this is sight. This is seeing eyes that see Jesus for who he truly is. And for Thomas, it changed everything. See, Thomas that day did not just see the holes in his hands. Thomas saw Jesus for who he really is. That's why he calls him my Lord and my God. This was personal. And for us, it's the same. Sandy Miller, uh, who's a bishop and uh, who was the vicar at Holy Trinity Brompton before Nicky Gumbel and is still one of the legends, one of the heroes of the faith, even in, in, in his older age. I wrote a little book called All I Want Is You. And this is what he writes about faith. There are really only two ways of approaching faith and approaching belief. We can wait until we understand in order to believe, or we can decide to believe in order that we can begin to understand. These two are not necessarily irreconcilable, but they are not easy to do together. Much of modern study today assumes that we must first understand if we are going to be able to believe, but that assumption carries with it great risk. The risk is that if we are to find God, we have to take a step of faith, a step which may never be taken if we insist on waiting until we can properly understand. Faith, said Kierkegaard, wants to state the absolute, whereas reason wants to continue to reflect. But the resurrection is beyond human understanding. It is the mysterious work of God, divine omnipotence. We humans can't do resurrection. That is the point. Only God can. So if we continually postpone belief until we understand, we shall never believe. The problem is compounded because we tend to want to be in charge of the whole process. While we are seeking truth, we are in charge. When the truth is acknowledged, he is in charge. As Bono put it in his song, walk on. You're packing a suitcase for a place none of us has been, a place that has to be believed to be seen. So the best way to faith is to take a deep breath and to dare to believe. That is seeing. That is seeing beyond what our eyes can see. 
We see beyond, beyond what is before us, beyond what steals our attention, beyond the proof that we think we need, beyond the doubts that we think have taken a hold of us. And there we see him and we see ourselves the way we truly are. Just as I finish today, and just as I wrap this up, you know, we've been speaking today about how resurrection life means peace and means sight. But the incredible reality of this passage that we've read today is the fact that still Jesus comes to the disciples and still he comes to us. A bit earlier on in John, Jesus had promised the disciples in in John chapter 14, he promised them this, I will not leave you desolate. I will come to you. And to the destruction of that Easter weekend, Jesus was true to his word. As they locked themselves away in fear, as they locked themselves away trying to keep the rest of the world out, having had the most shattering experience of their lives, they locked themselves there. Still, Jesus came to them. And you know, I wonder today, wherever you are, maybe in the desolate place, maybe in the doubting place, Maybe you're in the place where you're coming to see dead places, dead space in your life. The parts of your faith that were maybe once alive, now dead. I wonder if Jesus is coming to you today. You know, I wonder if over the last number of weeks or just where you are right now, you have become aware that Jesus is in the room. That he's here now. That he's talking to you. Maybe you've become aware as you've been walking. Maybe you've become aware through communion last week. Maybe you've become aware just through this today, an online church. Maybe it's been songs that you've been listening to. Maybe it's been family time. But at some stage, you've turned around and you've realized that Jesus is there. I want to tell you today that he still comes to you. I want to tell you today that Jesus can go where nobody else can go. I want to tell you today that Jesus' resurrection means that he can do what no one else can do, that he can get access to parts of you and parts of your life that you feel are locked down and closed off. I want to say that his breath still brings dead places to life, that his peace is still the sign of new life breaking into yours. I want to say that his sending still to bear that life that he gives you to the world, that's still what he calls you to do, even now. He still comes to you.